was like, do you know what? There's only five beehives, it'll be fine. But actually, five beehives feel like something like 20,000 bees. I don't know how many bees there were, but it really... Feels like that. Yeah, it just felt like that to me. And he Mm. said, don't worry, because I'll know if they get angry. And I said, how will you know? And he said, because they'll smell like bananas. I didn't find it a depressing read in that it it just took me somewhere else and it really heightened my empathy and I wondered what feedback you've had from readers about how they felt reading this and if that's changed globally depending where people are reading the book. I've had more or less something similar to what you just said that that, Mm. you know that there are it is very sad and it's you know there's a lot of trauma in there but that, that, that people tend to be able to find something hopeful in there. And also there's a line in the book that sums that up from Mustafa, who says, where there are bees, there are flowers, and where there are flowers, there is new life yeah. and hope. So did you taste the honey when you went and, and spent time with Riyadh? And, and what was it like? Oh my God, it was lovely. And it wasn't just it was the smell as well, and I've still got some of it. Hello, welcome back to Best Sellers. I'm Phil Williams. And I'm Natalie Jameson. How's Tricks this week? Tricks this week? Well, I've got news, first of all. Have you? Yeah, I've got news to bring you. What a surprise. Um, You're usually so quiet and retiring. <laughs> I've always got news, haven't I? Whenever you ask me that, I've got... You have, yeah. Well, first of all, shout out to Kevin Coleman, who listens and subscribes to this podcast, who got in touch about American Spy and Ooh, Lauren hey, Wilkinson's Kevin. book. And Kevin says, Phil and Natalie, just thought you might like to know that I finished American Spy. I think I get it now. It helped listening to the latest podcast, which is great. I must stop having preconceptions around books, says Kevin. And then he added, he's off to read Breakpoint, which I think is Ollie Ollerton's uh, first book. We did Ollie for Battle Ready in episode four. And Lauren Wilkinson was episode five. And I'm just really pleased because he'd also got in touch and that to say he was struggling a bit with American Spy. And you know my rule on struggling with books is that if you're struggling, just put it down and go to another one. But I read it and I know you really believe in this book as well. And so I'm glad he yeah. pushed on. But I'm delighted that Me the too. podcast episode helped Yay. him to make sense of it based oh, on so what pleased. Lauren said. So, so pleased. That's lovely. It's really lovely. Yeah, really. I thought you'd be thrilled with that. And if you want to get in touch with us, obviously we're both on Twitter. At Pod is the Twitter handle. Or you can just drop us an email if you want to which is bestsellerspodcast at gmail.com, bestsellerspodcast at gmail.com. The other thing I thought we should start doing now that we're building Mm. a little bit of a following is to give some shout-outs to some places where we wouldn't necessarily think we were big, (laughs) right? Okay, well, I think you should maybe quantify big. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because as it left my mouth, I thought I'm going to have to quantify this. (laughs) Yeah, so um, I've perhaps misappropriated the word big there. (laughs) Where we have listeners that we wouldn't expect yeah. to reach listeners, right? So obviously, we can get a bit of a listener breakdown from the host, the podcast host, um, by country. And, you know, I'd have obviously... Imagine if we were on Family Fortunes, that, and Les <laughs> Deddy said to us, we asked 100 people, which country subscribing to bestsellers? I'd have gone UK, top answer, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I'm not going to give away second, because maybe we'll do those in a few weeks' time, and third and fourth. But right down at the bottom there, we've got... We've currently got eight listeners in Singapore. Nice. Shout Ooh. out to Singapore. Have you been? <laughs> yeah, never. Um, no, I've not Would either. love to, though. Yeah, somebody uh, from university lives in Singapore who, yeah, I've never been to visit her, but I'd go visit her. That'd be great. Hi, Malika. Okay, well, here's the throwdown then. If you're one of the eight people in Singapore and you're minted, <laughs> if you would like to pay for Natalie and me to come to see you and do an episode of bestsellers from yours and you promise not to murder us. I think I think it's a bit early for this. It feels a little bit inappropriate. <laughs> come on. I'm just chancing the arm that. You never know. There. there could be a bestsellers benefactor out there that might want a bestsellers benefactor T-shirt in return for a huge amount of cash. <laughs> Why don't we just start low level? If you want to recommend a book, you've got the email. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, that's probably sensible. Yeah. Oh, it's so good you're here. Isn't it? Otherwise, I'd be out of control. <laughs> Always. So um, I'm looking forward to this week's one as well. We got to chat to Christy Lefteri uh, about a book that actually you brought this one to the table again, didn't you? Yeah, and, the um, beekeeper yeah, so of a read it. Yeah. Natalie Jameson. Why don't you introduce Natalie Jameson? And then that Natalie Jameson from a few days ago will interview Christy. It's not confusing at all. Here's me. 
Christy Lefteri is a lecturer in creative writing at Brunel University. Her work in a refugee centre in Athens is what directly inspired the beekeeper of Aleppo into being. But I imagine that her personal experience growing up in London after her parents fled Cyprus after the Turkish invasion in 1974 must have had quite an inspiring, impactful time uh, that's fed into her writing as well. Um, Her novel's been a Sunday Times bestseller as well as a hit around the world. There was a bidding war over it. It's been translated into 45 countries. The paperback came out in February 2020 and in April, Christy won the Aspen Words Literary Prize, which spotlights fiction that shines a light on a vital contemporary issue. Christy, hi. Hi. I'm so impressed you did that without taking a breath. <laughs> I'm just impressed with what she's achieved with, with just this book. Thanks for that lovely introduction. What was the impetus then to make you want to write this story? I mean, I assume it was all kind of linked to your past experience and, and working in that refugee centre. But um, yeah. what was the kind of, was there a light bulb moment where you're like, I just have to write this as a story? Well, yeah. Well, shall I tell you sort of how, what, what led me to go and work in the refugee centre mm. in the first place? So, as you said, my parents were refugees themselves. And I, did, I kind of, my dad was a, a commanding officer of that war. And I felt that I grew up in the shadow of that invasion, of that war, of, of their displacement. And there were certain reactions and things when I was young that I didn't quite understand. And you know, when you're a kid, you sort of, you don't get it and you might blame yourself or you might think, oh, what's that about? And, but you know, um, and it wasn't until later when I grew up, grew up that I started to sort of put the pieces of the jigsaw together and go, oh, right, you know, well, my dad must have suffered so much trauma and my mum left everything that she knew. And, and not only my mum and dad, but my grandparents and my uncles and aunties and just everybody in the family, um, really. So I think that was so much part of who I was and without me even realising. I mean, I realised, but it was even more than what I realised. Mm. And um, so anyway, uh, in 2008, my mum passed away. Um, and then my dad moved back to Cyprus. So he'd been here for 40 years. So the fact, you know, living here with my parents was all about, you know, what I saw was them trying to integrate and make a life for themselves here um, and what that meant to them and whether that was difficult or whether that was easy in some ways or, you know. So anyway, after 40 years, my dad decided to go back to Cyprus and um, in the Easter holidays of 2016, I went to visit him. And I mean, I've told this story quite a few times because it had such an impact on me. I just went for a walk and went down to the beach near where he lives. And he lives on the far east side of Cyprus that faces Syria. And the war was was, um, really, really bad at that point. I remember um, there was so much on the news and I just, you know, if you got on a little boat from where my dad lives and went across the water, you'd be in Syria in about an hour or so. That's how close it is. And I just, I kept thinking, thank, oh God, you know, I'm so lucky that I'm here and I'm safe. But what about all those other people and, and all those awful images that we were seeing on the news and just thinking that it was just there, you know, mm-hmm. just a little boat ride away. But that, you know, there was nothing, you feel helpless, don't you? What, what can you do as one person? But because I knew what my parents had been through, I really wanted to do something um I know it's different it's a different war it's different circumstances but I it just sort of got to me so I decided that I could um do some voluntary work over the summer and because I've got long holidays from the university and that's how I ended up in Athens so already I took myself there with a lot of I suppose emotional baggage you know, mm-hmm. as you do, because I guess it's things like that, that that perhaps draw us to certain things or certain, you know, decisions that we make in our lives. So I was already there kind of um, imagining what it was like for my own family to be refugees. And then, and then I was seeing all these people that were just absolutely lost and stuck. And they'd been on these horrendous journeys. They just got to Athens. 
Athens was often the first safe-ish place that they got to. And I was working in a women and children's center. Um, so I wasn't in the camps, I was in the women and children's center. And so we, they, there was like a biscuit area, a tea biscuit area, we didn't have a food license. There was um, an, a place where they could have warm showers because there weren't showers in the camps. A, a place for the children to play. There was a place for new mothers. So we had a sofa and women that had just given birth, they would, um, they would kind of be in that place. So we could, so we would rotate. So if I was in the sofa area, then I'd help the mothers with their babies, that sort of thing. If I was in the shower, then I'd clean the showers. If I was in the tea and biscuit area, I tried to remember who wanted like milk and their tea and who didn't and who weren't. <laughs> so it was just kind of a lot of running around and just doing, you know, just doing what you could. But you absorb, you know, there's so much I absorbed and saw so much. Um, and I just remember ever since I was a little girl, when I get overwhelmed with emotion, my first instinct is to want to write. So I remember thinking, well, I might want to write something about this. So in the afternoons, I, I started to talk to people and find out their stories. Mm. Not, not in the center, it was, it was after work because the center was a safe place. So we couldn't, it, you know, we weren't supposed to ask the women questions. If they wanted to talk to us, they could. But after in the afternoon in Victoria Square, loads of people would hang around and, you know, I would just say to people, I might, you know, I, I might want to write something. Would you tell me your story? And a lot of people really did want to tell their stories. So in The Beekeeper of Aleppo, how much of the story that we read, so we should explain a bit about it, that we read about we, Nuri and his wife Afra, and Afra has lost her sight, and the book flashes between them being in England, trying to apply for asylum, and then backfilling their journey to get to England. So how much of what we've read in this book comes from actual first-hand accounts that you were given? Um... Not too, too much. So what I did is I, I kind of absorbed the stories and created my own characters. So I absorbed the emotion and created my own story. But there were some characters that, were, that are more based on reality than others. For example, Angeligi uh, was, was very similar, to, is very similar to a woman that I met who kept telling me that her child had been stolen from her. Um, and she was telling me that she had these blisters on her arms and she was afraid that she'd been poisoned. And I think her mind was just completely broken. I think she just sort of, she'd lost her child. I'd never figured out how. Um, but, but the character in my story was different because the character in my story, her breasts were le leaking. In real life, the woman's breasts weren't leaking, for example. She was from a different place in Africa. It was, so I was really, when I met this woman, she really stayed in my mind and it helped me to create the character of Angeligi. Um, and then there were other people, for example, like, um, let me think, who's similar? Oh, well, the beekeeper. So Nuri and Afra are completely made up, completely made up, but they're a, they're a sort of amalgamation of the things I felt and saw and, you know, all sorts of stories. They're just, you know, but they are made up as characters. I didn't meet someone who, a woman who was an artist who was blind or, you know, but I, I met people and their children were there and then there were children who weren't there and I kept wondering, oh, did did they die there and what happened? And so it was all of this stuff. Whereas Mustafa, I'd cre so I created his character, but then after I met Rial, Riyad Al-Sous, which I'll go into if you want me to, but it's quite mm -hmm. a long story. But after I met Riyad, who was a beekeeper and a professor of agriculture at Damascus Uni, he basically came over to the UK and settled as a refugee in um, Huddersfield. And he, he if you, you know, you'll recognize this, he basically runs a project where he teaches refugees and job seekers how to keep bees. And he inspired me so much 
that I got to the point where I was writing Mustafa's character and sometimes I couldn't differentiate between Riyadh and Mustafa because, because Riyadh had inspired me so much that somehow Mustafa started morphing more and more into Riyadh, <laughs> you know. So Mustafa, we should explain, he's Nuri's cousin and he's already in England and he's emailing Nuri to say, you need to come and join me. He's in Yorkshire and he's a beekeeper and we learn in the backstory that he taught Nuri how to be a beekeeper. And so that all came from this person, Riyadh, that you just mentioned, did it? Because the, well, I've isolated the part. I wanted to just read, if you don't mind, Christy, which it gets across just how detailed your knowledge is on beekeeping. Um, this is obviously first person from Nuri. I had a sensitivity that most men lacked, that I understood their rhythms and patterns. Uh, he was right. I learned how to really listen to the bees, and I spoke to them as though they were one breathing body with a heart. Because, you see, bees work together. Even when at the end of summer the drones are killed by workers to preserve food resources, they are still working as one entity. They communicate to one another through a dance. It took me years to understand them, and once I did, the world around me never looked or sounded the same again. Now, I don't think you could write something that beautiful unless you had prior knowledge, am I right? Yeah. <laughs> so, Riyadh <laughs> just taught me so much. I'll tell you how the whole beekeeping thing started. Um, basically, I just woke up one day and I was like, oh, Nuri's going to be a beekeeper because I couldn't figure out what his job was. Um, so going back to actually the original question, which was when did this story start to come to life? When I was in Athens in 2016, because I went back in 2017, I just started to get this image of this woman and this man and their, their house was crumbling, she was blind, they'd lost their son, and he came into the house with a pomegranate to give her as a gift. And I went to England with that as an image in my head, but it wasn't moving, these characters hadn't started to come to life. Then when I kind of went back to the UK and just, you know, had some time to think, the characters started to move and I started to write that scene, and I didn't know what Nuri was gonna be, so I thought, well, that's it. One day I just woke up and I thought, that's it. He's going to be a beekeeper. So I started researching beekeeping in general, beekeeping in Syria, agriculture in <laughs> Syria. I was reading and reading and reading until eventually I came across an article about a man called Dr. Riyad Al-Sous. And I thought, wow, God, this man's absolutely amazing. What strength he has. And, you know, I read all about how he came over here as a refugee. He settled in Huddersfield and set up this project to help people and he'd come over with his family. So what I did is I found him on Facebook and sent him a message by messenger, keeping my fingers crossed that he was gonna reply. And then he did the next day. And I told him that I was writing this book and I said to him, what you're doing is absolutely amazing and I'd love to speak to you. So he replied and said, my dearest Christy, which is why he <laughs> always uses those words with niche, uh, with, um, Nuri, uh, I just gave you the my character's name for my next book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, no one heard it. It just sounds like a sneeze. <laughs> <laughs> and I just realised they both begin with ends. That never occurred to me before. But anyway, so anyway, he contacted me and he was like, Oh yeah, you know, why don't you, you know, I told him, we spoke and he said, why don't you come and visit me, my family and the bees? So I went to Huddersfield and the first time I met the bees was in his garden and in his garden, so there were two apiaries we were going to visit, but in his garden, he didn't have any protective gear. So he said to me, well, we can, we can see the bees in the garden first, but there's no protective gear. But he said, don't worry, just trust me, it'll be fine. And but were, <laughs> I looked outside and I was like, do you know what? There's only five beehives. It will be fine. But actually, five beehives feel like something like 20,000 bees. I don't know how many bees there were, but it really right. it feels like that. Yeah, it just felt like that to me. And he mm. said to me, you might recognize this team. So he said, don't worry, because I'll know if they get angry. And I said, how will you know? And he said, because they'll smell like bananas. So he got me to stand like this with my um, <laughs> hand over my eyes so that they wouldn't sting my eyes. And he said, just be really, really still. So I was. And I was scared at first because I kept thinking that I could smell bananas. 
but then I let myself relax. I was like having banana hallucinations. But then I let myself relax. I was like, these bees aren't going to kill me. It'll be fine. And Riyadh's very trustworthy, I can tell. And, um, and then it was just beautiful. It was like being in this like really beautiful, dangerous bubble. Because all that, the sounds and the smells and knowing that I felt vulnerable, but it was fine. Um, and did they land on you or are they just around you? No, they were just around me. I don't think they landed on me. If they did, I didn't notice. Um, I didn't get stung, but I used that scene. So when Mustafa introduces Nuri to the bees for the first time, I used that from my own personal experience of what it felt like for me to meet the bees for the first time. Um, and then when we went to the apiaries, um, he had protective gear and all the stuff that we needed to wear. So that was a bit different because I was basically following him around. There were so many beehives. There were like, uh, I don't know, maybe 50, 40. There were loads. So you can imagine how many bees there were. And he was talking to me and I was recording and he taught me so, so much. That's when he taught me about how he raises queen bees. He was opening up the trays of the beehives and telling me stuff and showing me all sorts of things and and telling me how the bees communicate with each other. And he told me all about the different seasons and how it all works. And obviously I was recording it. So then I could go home and listen to it and listen to it again and then listen again. And, and because that first time it was just a bit too much for me to, if I couldn't have recorded it, I would have forgotten half of it, but it was, it was all there. And then Riyadh also said, if you've got any other questions, we can speak. And, you know, we stayed friends and, you know, we chatted quite a few times. So, yeah, it was, I think that all went into the story. I completely forgot what you asked me now. It, well, it was about that, really. I, re I read the quote. I read the quote and said that, you know, you can't have, that quote was so poetic, you can't possibly have made it up. And you haven't. You've, you've answered the question. You've just told us just the level of detail that went in. And have you been around the bees since? Have you, was it just a one-off visit or have you, do you now, are you into it? No, the visit, well, the visit, that visit with Riyadh was a one-off. We spoke on the phone quite a few times and I had the recording. Then when I went to um, Holland, I met another beekeeper there who knew Riyadh. So I got to meet the bees there, although it was an entirely different experience, but he was also a refugee and he knew Riyadh from back in Syria. So it was this kind of, you know. Wow. Um, so that was a really wonderful, interesting experience because I was in a different country and, you know, um, and we, I was interviewed for that. That's, that's actually online somewhere as well, I think, that interview. Um, but with Riyadh, I was supposed to go back um, at some point and we were supposed to kind of get interviewed together. But for some reason that hasn't happened yet. So I'm hoping that that could happen at some point in the future once all this lockdown is over. That would be really cool. I had two questions sort of on the B side of things. And then I think we should definitely hear you read some of your beautiful book. But um, first of all, this will make Phil laugh because I brought this up with another author when we were chatting to David Nichols. I could really smell a lot of the scenes you were describing. And I really wanted to taste some of that honey that you talk about from the bees. So did you taste the honey when you went and, and spent time with Riyadh? And, and what was it like? Oh my God, it was lovely. And it wasn't just it was the smell as well. And I've still got some of it because I was so reluctant <laughs> to taste all of it. And I even some money home and it and yeah I had that eventually I had to throw that away because it you know went a bit manky but um I the honey I've still got some of it in my fridge in my cupboard and I bought some back for a friend of mine as well so it was it's absolutely delicious and when I was tasting the honey it reminded me of the smells so then I could put that taste and those smells together. It was gorgeous. And also when you read this as well, again, I have, I wouldn't know where to start with beekeeping, but I think in your head, you as you read it and you get so involved in the story, part of you does think, maybe I could get a, a high for my garden <laughs> <laughs> because you get so involved in it. And so, you know, have you now got bees in your garden? I kind of want you to have. Do you know what? Because I have a shared garden, because I didn't think about this, I gave it some serious thought. I thought, right, I really want to have bees. And I've got a shared garden and I thought, you know what? If I'm going to have bees, I'm going to have to send one of those emails out to the rest of the block going, does anyone mind if I keep bees? And you know, <laughs> thought, do you know what? I'll just 
wait until I get a place that's actually got where I've got my own garden and then I'll give but it. It's going to happen then. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hope so. I just, I, I kind of fell in love with the whole thing. It was just beautiful. And you know, I learned so much from Riyadh about, um, so he, he's doing a lot of research into the British black bee, which is going extinct, which Mustafa obviously is also mm. doing. Mm. So inspired by Riyadh. Um, so there was all this stuff about the British black bee and how we're not utilizing our own um, native bee. And I found all that really interesting. And I read around that as well. It's just, it's like it's endless. There's so much to learn. Well, look, we should probably hear a bit uh, as all the authors on bestsellers agree to do and read to us a, a passage of their work. Where, where are we joining your story, Christy, in this reading? Well, I'm going to read a bit from near the beginning. Um, this, this is actually a bit in the UK when Afra and Nuri had made it to a B&B um, in Brighton. And so I'm just, I'm gonna read a little bit from, from that section there. Perfect. So I'm glad Afra can't see this place. She would like the seagulls though, the crazy way they fly. In Aleppo, we were far from the sea. I'm sure she would like to see these birds and maybe even the coast because she was raised by the sea while I'm from Eastern Aleppo, where the city meets the desert. When we got married and she came to live with me, Afra missed the sea so much that she started to paint water wherever she found it. Throughout the arid plateau region of Syria, there are oasis and streams and rivers that empty into swamps and small lakes. Before we had Sami, we would follow the water and she would paint it in oils. There is one painting of the quake I wish I could see again. She made the river look like a storm water drain running through the city park. Afra had this way of seeing truth in landscapes. The painting and its measly river reminds me of struggling to stay alive. 30 or so kilometers south of Aleppo, the river gives up the struggle of the harsh Syrian steppe and evaporates into the marshes. I am scared of her eyes, but these damp walls and the wires in the ceiling and the billboards I'm not sure how she would deal with all this if she could see it. The billboard just outside says that there are too many of us, that this island will break under our weight. I'm glad she's blind. I know what that sounds like. If I could give her a key that opened a door into another world, then I would wish for her to see again. But it would have to be a world very different from this one, a place where the sun is just rising, touching the walls around the ancient city. And outside those walls, the cell-like quarters and the houses and apartments and hotels and narrow alleys and an open-air market where a thousand hanging necklaces shine with that first light and further away across the desert land, gold on gold and red on red. Sammy would be there, smiling and running along those alleys with his scuffed trainers, changing his hand on his way to the, shore, to the store to get milk. I try not to think about Sammy. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much for that. So as that starts in the UK, I wanted to ask you about the experience that those that you interviewed had about the asylum process here in the United Kingdom. Chain chapter two, quite early on, the social worker, uh, Lucy Fisher, who really, seems really lovely with them, says to Nuri at one point, I'm not your enemy, Mr. Ibrahim. And he replies saying, I wish I knew who my enemy was. And I just... I wonder, did you speak to those who have to process the applications as well as those going through it to get a balanced picture? Yeah, so because, so I already mentioned that I spoke to a lot of people in, in, in not Cyprus, in Athens, which meant that at that point, I got to understand what people's desires were, where they wanted to end up. So what I learned about the UK at that point was that not many people even tried to get to the UK because they thought it would be too difficult, it was more expensive, so smugglers would charge more to get people to the UK than anywhere else. Yeah. Well, you've got the channel, you've, you know, the, the, it's also uh, various, I think people had an idea. It's weird because some people thought the environment was more hostile in the UK and others thought that they'd be safer if they eventually managed to get here and claim asylum. So there was this, you know, um, all these conversations going on. So that was the experience I had of people wanting to get to UK in Athens while, while I was in Athens. And here I interviewed people. So I, I remember the reason I set it in Brighton was because the first man I ever interviewed in the UK 
had managed to um, find housing. Well, he, he got to the UK without his family and then they put him in a, I think it was either a hostel or a bed and breakfast or something in Brighton. But his wife and his children were still in Syria. Um, and I interviewed him in a little cafe in Brighton and I got a lot of information about his journey from Syria to the UK, how he got here, what the asylum process had been, why his family was still there, what that process was in itself. Um, so that was one part. The other thing was, which is really important, was in between 2016 and 2017, I decided to learn Arabic. So I found an Arabic tutor called Ibrahim Otman, who was um, himself, he was from Aleppo. I didn't know he was from Aleppo. I found him on First Tutors. Um, <laughs> I met with him in Houston and we decided that we were going to have an hour and a half of a lesson every week. What happened was I told him what I was doing and that I'd started this story and I didn't know where it was going. So I ended up finding out that not only was he from Aleppo, but he was a translator for boys that were going through their asylum interviews. So I got to interview boys that I'd met through Ibrahim and I got to hear stories from Ibrahim's point of view too and also Ibrahim's story itself and how he mm -hmm. got here um, and also I got to hear a hell of a lot about Syria before the war and he helped me to write that bit in Syria because I kept... There were so many times I nearly gave up with this book because I kept thinking, well, how can I write the bit in Syria? I can't even go to Syria. What right do I have to write it? And it was Ibrahim. He was like, no, no, just keep going. Because we were doing that 45 minutes of Arabic and then we were going through my manuscript or we were bringing maps up on Google, like on Google World and all sorts of things. And, and, and he was like, where, do you want, where are your characters? Where do you want them to get to? So we'd kind of map out the journey and he'd say they'd go this way and they'd go that way and that way, that way. So that was the Syria. But in terms of the asylum process, I interviewed so many, it was mostly boys that I interviewed or men, actually, and got to learn so much about the whole asylum process. And, you know, near the end, well, not too near the end, but later, <laughs> um, there's this bit where... Um, Nori and Afra are going to have their asylum interview and all those questions that the asylum officer yes. asked them, they're kind of odd questions, they're very weird sort of questions. They were all questions that Ibrahim had told me. I had a list probably of about 100 questions to choose from, all of which he'd heard during the asylum interviews. So they're all legitimate. And did you get, I want to come back to Syria in a moment, but did you speak to any of the people who do the interviewing? Did you get any sense? No. 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 Because I was really interested that you made, I felt as a reader, Lucy, who fulfills that role in your story, is quite sympathetic to some of the asylum seekers. And I wondered whether that, what, what that was born from. That, I think that was born from the stories that I heard. So like, uh, I, when I interviewed people, I heard that there were um, social workers and people that were very helpful and rooting for them you know but so I heard a lot of those stories so I think I developed that character based on that and on the Syria stuff the um the Syria the, the description I, I picked it's funny you should mention what Ibrahim did for you because I picked a bit out where I thought it was just an incredibly vivid description of Aleppo we were heading to Uram al-Kubra about 20 kilometers west of Aleppo we meandered through the ruins of the old city the western neighborhoods they were held by government forces the rebels had the east the river could see it all running now through a no man's land between the opposing front lines and you describe an enormous billboard of Bashar al-Assad his blue eyes bright like jewels even in the darkness the poster was intact completely untouched critical detail that and again I thought that could only have come from a first-hand account um, I wrote that before I spoke to um, Ibrahim, that scene. And then I added to it once I spoke right. to him. Because I don't forget, I was reading lots as well. So I was reading lots about the history of Syria and about the various towns around Aleppo. So I wrote a little bit. It wasn't all of it. It was just a tiny bit. So the bit with the poster, I remember I'd written it because I kept picturing 
this idea that this, because, you know, like when I was watching the news and when I was reading stuff on Google and I'd see this president with these blue eyes and I thought that, you know, I thought, what the hell is going on inside that brain of his? You know, like, what is going on in there? And it would just disturb me to see him and to see those eyes and, and that somehow all these people were dying and he was untouched. And, and so I created that scene based on that feeling I had. And then when I spoke to Ibrahim and we read it together, that's when I embellished it and I added things and I made it come to life differently. So, so in a way it was like Ibrahim, you know, he helped me to bring it to life even more. The things that I couldn't see and I couldn't smell and I couldn't quite understand. He kind of, it was like putting leaves on the branches of a tree, you know? Mm. That's what it felt like talking to Ibrahim. It's so funny because before we do these interviews, Phil and I, we have a brief chat about what kind of things we're interested in talking about, but but not in too much detail because it's hopefully it's supposed to be just more of a, a natural chat as well. And, and we both come at, at this from, from different perspectives. And just listening to Phil and you chat there, obviously, of course, I picked up a lot of the political resonance throughout this book. But whereas you went for Assad's sparkling blue eyes is something that stood out for you Phil I was all about like the Narenge trees which I hadn't heard I assumed that that was orange from oh, my yeah. brief yeah. knowledge of Portuguese and Spanish um, and it was those kind of really colourful and vibrant and and I really wanted to see some of Afra's paintings and the landscapes that she was describing and, and those were the really vivid things that that stuck out for me um, but the kind of the thing I wanted to ask you was about the tone of the book, because I think it's obviously it's deeply sad in many places and makes you feel a lot when you're reading it. But strangely, I I didn't find it a depressing read in that it took me just took me somewhere else and it really heightened my empathy and and it didn't make me feel overwhelmingly sad. If anything, it was a bit more of a galvanizing experience and I wondered what feedback you've had from readers about how they felt reading this and if that's changed globally depending where people are reading the book. I've had more or less sim something similar to what you just said that, that, mm. you know, that there are it is very sad and it's you know there's a lot of trauma in there but but that people tend to be able to find something hopeful in there and um, mm -hmm. I think that probably came from me and in the first place, I think it probably came from the women and the children that I met. Because like, yeah. if you think, so from 2006, it, you know how before I said I absorbed the things that I saw and heard, but I also absorbed the things that I felt. So one mm. of the major things was before 2016 and 2017, in between, the center had changed from a drop-in center where hundreds of people, hundreds of women and children were coming in to have showers, to to have the tin biscuits, like I said, all this stuff, and it was all chaos. To, by 2017, when I went back, it had turned into an activity center. These women were learning Greek, English, German, other useful skills. Um, they were doing, they were having dance lessons and maybe yoga lessons, you know, all sorts of things that were gonna help them to find their feet, I suppose, you know? And I was mm. absolutely amazed by the strength that these people had and the, and the resilience mm -hmm. of the women and the children that I met. So I suppose that kind of fed into the story and then people see yeah. that and feel it. And, they, and that's, that tends to be what I hear, that, that kind of, well, there's all this trauma and it's sad, but I felt all this hope. And my response is usually that's because that's what I saw. And also there's a line in the book that sums that up from Mustafa who says, where there are bees, there are flowers and where there are flowers, there is new life yeah. and hope. Mm -hmm. I did also find reading it as well that um, it's funny, I, I work on various other podcasts as well. And there was a very wise person that I was privy to being part of a conversation with Christiana Figueres, the UN climate negotiator. And she was saying that in lockdown, it's been fascinating that um, empathy she views as a muscle. And actually, in lockdown, when a pandemic's taken over so much of the world, people have really been using that muscle. And what she hopes when eventually this goes away is that people don't forget to use that muscle of empathy. And I kind of there was a real sense of that that shone out from from your words when I was reading it as well. And, and I wonder if that's kind of sustained you 
to sort of during this time? No, absolutely. Yeah, I, I that really resonates what she said. I can totally see mm. that. I can see that everywhere. <laughs> you know, just with the people. Just, I mean, just a little thing, but getting to know the neighbours, getting to know, you know, there's like, mm. I have a WhatsApp group. I know this is like, sounds like a different conversation, but there's a WhatsApp group. <laughs> it's a neighbourhood WhatsApp group and everyone's helping each other. And does someone need this? And does anyone need this? And there's a real sense of community. And I can tell that people really want to help each other. And even, even that on a day-to-day, everyday day-to-day life basis, I think that empathy has grown and it's extended. And, and I guess, you know, like what's going on now with the riots as well, you can say it's like an explosion of empathy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think in the quiet that we've had, I think that something maybe has come to life in us that usually in everyday life where we're running around, maybe it doesn't, it just doesn't have that much mm-hmm. space to, to grow. And I think that's been with me definitely during lockdown, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I know that obviously you kind of want to create some kind of change with this book too, in terms of people's behavior, hopefully. And, and there are some resources at the end of the novel where you say if you do want to help if you want to volunteer or take part in anything these are some good places to start have you got any idea of gauging if people have done that if they've gone to these places do you know what I don't know on my website I've got um there are stories that I collected with a friend of mine from um who was working in a refugee center in uh Thessaloniki um and there's children's stories on there their actual stories that they wrote themselves about their journeys and what they feel like Mm. there's all that information there and there are ways to help but you know what and this is the thing that's the most important and i said this um during the interview when i uh, won the aspen prize is what's really important is that literature can help us to change or to it can create a shift in perception and perspective Mm -hmm. And I think if someone says, well, what can I do? Sometimes it's not about doing. Sometimes it's about allowing that shift to take place inside us. And then things, that's where every change begins with Mm -hmm. that shift of of perspective or perception of something. So I'm, I don't know how many people have done something, but if I, if I think, well, I hope that people reading the book felt what I felt when I was working in the center and perhaps they could see some of what I saw then I think that that would that means a lot that really means a lot to me so this seems like a good place as well to explain a bit more about the Aspen prize that you won and it's about that blending of of fiction like galvanizing and and shining a spotlight on 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 a difficult issue in society I felt so honored to win that prize because I think because of how I see, because I think literature is so important in our lives in in the, in the sense that it can create shifts and in the sense that we can have intimacy with the characters. You know, when I was watching the news before going to Athens, it's not that I didn't care about what I was seeing. It's just, I felt quite detached from it and I could turn off the TV um, it's different and you know it's all it's a lot of statistics and it's a lot of crisis imagery and non-specific language and that sort of goes over our heads and you know and I was I, I was uh, reading a psychologist called Paul Slavitt who who um, works at University of Oregon and he was writing about how as humans we naturally find it difficult to empathize with huge groups of people or with larger groups of people so once people become groups and they become statistics, we lose that intimacy. So I think literature um, gives us that connection, that intimate connection with the characters. And talking about literature as you were, Christy, there, can you explain the purposeful structure you've chosen for this book, which is where halfway through a chapter we'll get one key word written in a very kind of beautiful designed crest I want to say, you can probably describe it better than me. And that word takes you out of one part of the story and into another. But it's a device I've never seen before. Yeah, I'll tell you why I did that. So um, after my mum died, I remember like, um, I'd be talking to somebody like I'm talking to you now. And I don't know, you might say something like, I don't know, park or car or 
tea or whatever. And that word would just throw me into memory with my mum. So let's say you'd said the word tea, then suddenly part of me was really somewhere else having a cup of tea with my mum and a whole memory would come to life. And it was so sad for me that I felt this sort of drop, like I was dropping into the memory. It wasn't like normal, it was, it was something that was so painful that it just felt like my heart was dropping. And I'd, and I'd, I'd, um, I'd try really hard to be present still with the person that was talking to, but really I wasn't quite there. I, I had this memory going on in my head. So when I was um, creating this novel and I knew how much loss Nuri had suffered, and in some way Nuri felt like so real to me when I was writing him, um, and I knew he'd lost his son, he'd lost his home, he'd lost his bees, his wife was blind. There was so much trauma. Um, and I thought, how can I, how can I make that transition into the past so that my reader can feel that? And I kept remembering that feeling I was feeling every time I remembered my mum and knew that I wasn't going to see her again. And I thought, how can I bring that into the story? So I thought, why don't I play with words? What can I do with words? So I, I experimented and I tried. I thought, what if the last word of the present day chapter becomes the first word of the chapter that's a flashback because that's what's thrown him into the past. So I experimented and I did it and I thought, well, I actually, I think maybe this works. Um, but the reason I took the, the, the other choice that I made about the structure was because what I started, it was linear to begin with. So it started in Syria and it was going to end in the UK. And then for something told me, no, I need to start it in the UK because the story, the, you know, like the question of the story isn't, do they make it to the UK? The question is, can they recover emotionally in even a tiny little way so that they're able to love each other again in the way that they, mm. you know? So that was the real, that was the real journey in a way for the story. So that's why I thought, well, fine, the reader discovers from the beginning that they've made it to the UK, but there's another discovery to be made and that's to do with their, their emotions and their minds and their love for each other. So those were, those were the reasons for my structural decisions. Because the story is so much about love anyway. One thing on the structural decisions, I meant to do this before we spoke to you today, and obviously I just totally forgot until just now, is I was going to see if all those words make up a sentence. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> oh, God, that's interesting. It didn't occur to me. But it might make up some like weird anagram, because they're all lovely things like the sea or the waves or sunrise. Um <laughs> I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Theme in there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um uh something that obviously I know you I'm sure you've had loads of interest in already is talking about the potential film or TV version that might happen from this. Is there any update on where that is? I don't have an update at the moment. Um there, there I do have an update about the um theatre right, so somebody's writing the stage play of it. So I'm I'm not really sure how much I can say, but so that's sort of underway. Um but always I, safest bear is just to say everything and then don't worry about oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to say, what I'm not supposed to say. <laughs> so I yeah, but in terms of the film and TV, I think things are still things are still going on and I'm not quite sure what way that's going at the moment. Well, theatre is going to, that's happening. Well, somewhat, yeah. So the, the, the play is going to be written and, but then I don't quite know what happens after that. I think then a producer has to come on board. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know the, the ins and outs of it, but it's looking positive <laughs> there in that area. <laughs> is that a whole strange area to navigate anyway as somebody who's come from from writing novels and kind of moving into this other brave new world about film and tv and theatre yeah yeah I mean theatre you know I, I have a connection with obviously because I teach literature so I have that connection with uh theatre 
and um, so it's actually it's Matthew Spangler that's writing. I don't I don't really know how much I'm supposed to put, but anyway. So you know, when when I had a meeting with him, he was like, "Well, do you want to be do you want to be looking at the manuscripts as I'm writing it? How much do you want to be involved?" And actually, I said to him, "I'd love to look at. I'd love to be involved in some way because I've just." I've always loved the theatre and, you know, it's a learning experience for me as well. So obviously I'm not involved in writing it, but, you know, there's always that thing of being able to read it and give an opinion, you know, that sort of thing. And I thought that would be a wonderful thing to be involved in. Um, but in terms of how decisions are made, I'm, I feel a bit at a loss with all that stuff. I'm, I'm not really sure. I just kind of wait for my agent to tell me things and I'm like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Christine, what are you writing next then? You've alluded to, you've already given us a, a character name for second. I know, two. I said the name Nisha, didn't I? Yeah. So um, mm. I'm, I'm writing, well, I'm writing a novel called Songbirds and uh, it's about the migration of domestic workers. It's set in Cyprus, but it's also about the poaching of songbirds. I think if I try and explain too much, I'm going to get into muddle because I'm only halfway through. <laughs> But it sounds it sounds as though to simplify it that the um the songbirds will fulfill the same role in this story as perhaps the bees did in the first story. Is that an easy uh, way sort to... of. Basically there's a there's a very sad situation in Cyprus where about five or six domestic it was five domestic workers went missing. Uh, they were reported missing, I think this was about two years ago. And um the sisters or employers of these women that were either from the Philippines or Sri Lanka or Nepal. They went to um, the police and the authorities refused to search for them. So there was no investigation. And about a year later, mm. somebody discovered a body and it was one of the women that had gone missing and had been reported missing. <clears throat> and then eventually an investigation was launched and they found out that a serial killer had in fact killed these women and two children. And the story upset me so mm. much because, you know, it's this idea of, racism that, that kind of exists and you don't really see it as such it's not so easy to until something happens and then suddenly it's mm -hmm. out and it's there and you can see it and and you know that's the that's the kind of uh, that, i think that's the kind of thing that this horrible situation illuminated was that these women weren't important enough to be searched for so um, I'm I because obviously my parents are both from Cyprus and I've got a lot of experience being there. So I've I've decided to kind of take that story on board from the perspective of a poacher and the perspective of one of the employees whose maid goes miss, missing. So that's that's sort of where I am with it at the moment. But you know it might change at my dad's. I'm I'm sort of coming up to the halfway point at the moment. But it's the, the themes are similar in a way because again it's that thing about displacement about prejudice about acceptance you know how much does it affect your own mental health when you're writing these stories and going really in depth on what's happened horrifically to people well um the beekeeper of aleppo i found it really difficult to write it was really emotional because i kept thinking about a lot about especially when i was writing the character of mohammed and sammy i kept thinking about all the children that hadn't mm. made it to athens that kind of that was a very haunting thought that, and I, I also remember having this feeling where, which has passed now, it's gone, this feeling. Well, sometimes it comes up a little bit, but it was quite intense. So I'd, after I came back from Athens, I'd be walking down the street or something, and I, I just couldn't take for granted that I was alive. I felt mm. too, I felt my mortality too much. And you just, it's really difficult to live like that because you're constantly thinking about war and death, basically. Because, mm -hmm. because I kept thinking about all the children that hadn't made it to Athens or all the people that hadn't. And then I was feeling guilty because I had a passport and I could come back to the UK. So that guilt kind of stayed with me. And then it just sort of, I just couldn't stop thinking about it for a while. So I was basically writing this book and thinking about it all the time. Mm. So I found that difficult, but obviously it's not as difficult as what the, these people went through and, and the journeys yeah. that they have to make, you know? For sure. Um, also, I just wanted to bring up in the acknowledgements again, you reference a bunch of writers who gave you support during the writing of The Beekeeper of Aleppo. And I just wondered 
what that kind of looks like and how it can can really um, how much you value that as somebody who's writing because you you credit uh, Bernadine Evaristo, Dalji Nagra and Matt Thorne especially. Yeah. So I think with Daoshit, we'd have this, because I work with them. So with Daoshit, I'd have this, mm. Daoshit, so this is happening in the story. What do you think? And we'd be walking down the corridor and he'd be like, oh, I don't know about that, Christy. And I was like, oh, no, okay. So <laughs> oh, okay, wait, 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 don't go to your lesson yet. What if that happened or this happened, you know? So <laughs> he was like, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. And then I'd see him again. I was like, right, so I've made a decision about blah, blah, blah. What do you think of this? And he'd be like, hmm. You know, so there was these conversations in the corridors. Bernadine has just been so supportive right from the start, not just with my writing, but with my whole career when it came to kind of, you know, uh, teaching, teaching at the university, mm -hmm. thinking about getting a, a permanent position because at the moment I work as a visiting lecturer, which still often I'm teaching the same amount of modules as somebody is there as a, in a full time, under a full time capacity. Mm. But so, you know, there was, Bernadine was always there for me to kind of, I could always ask questions and then when it was mm -hmm. getting published I'd be like this is happening what do you think of that and can you give me some advice about this and Matt Thorne I mean I've worked with him so much like he was always there for advice for anything you know I would just whatever it was whether it was interviews I was going on or or when I got really ill when I was in the middle of writing this book I got really ill with glandular fever for example and um, I didn't know what it was. So the doctors were like, well, we don't know what it is. And um, and it was Matt who rang me and he was like, don't worry, you know, because I was so worried about losing my job because I hadn't been into work for two months because I couldn't walk. And um, so he was like, don't worry. So, you know, all these people, they, they were there and they were supportive in such different and unique ways. But, you know, they, they, they became part of the process. Me. Christy, let's get some recommendations from you. We need some other books. Imagine people phone you up and they go, Christy, we need something to read, but it can't be one of yours. What are they? Okay, so I've got a few <laughs> to recommend. So one of them is a non-fiction, and I'm not sure when this is coming out. Um, I think in a few months or next month. It's Jordan Ritter-Con, and it's The Road from Raqqa, and it's wonderful. I know it's out in America. I think, yeah, road from, The Road from Raqqa, Jordan oh. Ritter-Con. Um, it's wonderful. It's a piece of nonfiction. The guy who wrote it was a journalist. It was really, really brilliant. Um, so my US publishers sent me this to read and I loved it. The other one um, is, again, this is, I think this is going to be out next month. It's The Phone Box at the Edge of the World by Laura Imai Messina. And it's beautiful. It's just, be it's just beautiful. I think I haven't read it, but I've heard quite a lot about that one already. I've sort of seen it popping up in lots of places. Yeah, I would really recommend that. It's, it's, it's about this phone. Oh, it's just beautiful. I don't want to say anything. <laughs> just read it. Just read it. Okay. Um, the other one that I'd recommend is by Olga Kakus, who won the Nobel Prize in Literature last year, um, Primeval and Other Times which is so dark and so disturbing and so beautiful. I finished it and I, I, I mean, it's so dark, but it's, it just kind of opened my eyes to things in ways that I didn't expect. Mm. Um, and it, it reads like a piece of, like almost like mythology or like a fairy tale, but it just says so much about the world, the world we live in. Mm. And the other mm. one, which is my favorite author of all time, Murakami, <laughs> um, uh, Killing Commandatore or The Wind Up Bird Chronicle, whichever one. I, I love him. I love him. I think if, I, if there was one writer I could choose to meet, it'd be him because I'd have so many questions to ask him. Would you be able to ask them or would you be really nervous? I think I'd be nervous and a bit starstruck. <laughs> it's just, there's something about the way he writes. It just, <laughs> I'm always reading it going, where the hell is this going? But it's always going somewhere. And it's just wonderful the way he kind of uh, brings together reality and, fan, you know, this kind of, his, it's his very own magical realism in a way, isn't it? It's his own style. I've not, I've not read anything like it before. But yeah, so those, those are my main recommendations, although there's loads. It's so difficult sometimes to know where to even begin. 
But there's a good spread there for us. Thank you so much for that. And thanks for talking to us on Best Sellers Day. We've, we've loved having your company. Thank you. I've loved talking to you guys. We have indeed. And we should say as well that obviously your book has resonated so much with people as well because you're a, a reading club, national reading group pick for this year. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's correct. Mm. Yeah, which is amazing. I, I didn't expect to win the vote, but clearly people voted for it. So it's brilliant. Yeah, I think your words definitely touch people. Thank you, Christy. Oh, thank you. Oh, I love chatting to Christy um, and also want to mention that if you are quick on listening to this, then National Reading Group Day does take place on Saturday, the 20th of June. Uh, so just a couple of days away. And it's just really easy to get involved. They've got a Facebook group. You can join in. They'll be posting questions about the beekeeper of Aleppo on there. And you can do it as a group if, you've, if you're already in a book club or a reading group, or you can do it by yourself as well. I just think it's, it's again, a really good way to get people chatting about books. Yeah, and isn't it lovely to have a National Reading Day? Yeah, so nice. Part of me feels a bit sad that we need one, but it's great that it's there, do you know what I mean? Yeah, but then, you know, if there's like, there's like cheese day and chip day, then there (laughs) should be a book day, right? Yeah. (laughs) Or actually, let's just combine them all and then you've got a perfect day. Add in wine day, cheese chips, wine, Wine, cheesy chips and a book. Yeah. We just described your ideal afternoon. (laughs) Yeah, we have. bit of music <laughs> how nice and someone else looking both looking after both of our children for half a day <laughs> yeah and bringing me a pina colada not the kids <laughs> they're not so good at mixing the alcohol yet <laughs> i don't think it's approved do you know what though it might improve their behavior <laughs> just get them leathered <laughs> yeah no again no <laughs> uh beekeeper of aleppo do you want to kick off yeah um I think I this probably came across during the interview, but it was one of those books where, again, it had been on my radar for a really long time to want to read, but I was concerned that it was going to make me really sad. And obviously the last few months have been quite sad anyway um, and quite anxiety-inducing with everything going on with coronavirus and living through a pandemic. Um, but I'm so pleased that I read this book because, as I was saying to Christy, it didn't make me feel worse about things actually the opposite you know it it kind of showed that you know what what the human spirits can do and the hope that there is in the world and actually obviously there are people in horrendous horrendous situations and yeah just really upped the empathy for for thinking of people and 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 just sort of realizing how lucky most of us are so two or three or four years ago um books went through a trend of what the publishers were even themselves calling to market misery lit. Oh, really? Yeah. And I was concerned that this type of book might be in that category because, as you said, it's it's obviously a harrowing story and it's fictional, but it's based around many true accounts that Christie was given firsthand. But exactly as you just said very eloquently, it's full of hope. Yeah. it does not feel a joyless read. It actually feels an educating read. It it's does. a read full of empathy. The descriptions of a place I've never been to were brilliantly vivid, and I always love that. So I feel like I could imagine it, even though I would never want to imagine being in Aleppo at the moment, you know, which, again, is such a shame given the beauty of Syria from those I know and I've interviewed who have been there and how beautiful it is. And so, um, yeah, just to echo what you said, Natalie, really, and that if you're thinking, oh, I don't know, it's about refugees, isn't it? And it's about whether they get to stay in the country, isn't it? And, oh, I don't know, I don't know. Just cast those aspersions aside. Yeah. Because yeah, hope shines in. through this like a, a beacon. And what's interesting is the publisher was saying to me that since this lockdown period and you were describing the anxiety-inducing period we've endured, the sales of this have rocketed. Oh, really? Sold more in the last few months. Yeah, actually, that doesn't surprise me. And, you know, the things that I really pulled out of this book as well, obviously, aside from the the sort of horrors and the trauma of a lot of it, is just like there's such there's such joy and such... She's got such a brilliant way with words, Christy Lefteri. And, you know, just describing some of the paintings that the artist in this does and the imagery of the town where they're living and where they go out to the bees. And it just creates this, you know, that's kind of what you want really good books to do, isn't it? Create this picture in your head as you're reading it. And I absolutely got that. And it was it was just lovely to to have that put into my brain. Yeah. The other things you put into my brain, right? 
Yeah. And I'm going to ask you, but my answer is never, right? But yeah. did it tempt you to want to keep bees? Yeah, it did. Did it really? <laughs> yeah, it did. You know, you wouldn't yeah. be frightened of multiple um, stings? No. No, not at all. Um, because you just, if you know, if there's going to be danger, you just smell bananas, right? <laughs> I, I love that stuff. That was brilliant. And um, I love honey. So, and I love like soaps that are made of honey. <laughs> Do you know what put me off though? There was a, a news story I read, oh, I mean, ages ago. And it, I mean, it probably was true. It may have been exaggerated, but the story was that a woman was in a garden. It was in this country and she was doing some gardening and she was attacked by a swarm of bees. And the only way she could stop the attack was that she had to run into her house and jump under the shower. Oh, really? And, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm aware that bees can do quite a lot of damage <laughs> in many ways. I think the only thing that would kind of put me off, though, is uh, bizarrely maybe the buzzing. You know, like if there was just like that low-level hum buzz, yeah, yeah. that would be annoying, possibly. Although but if again, Christie's description's right in this book, it's much more melodic than that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And you know what? It, it's nature, isn't it? So it's got to be good in the long run. Um, I'm probably not going to get bees. No. But, <laughs> but that I'm open to the idea of it. I do really want to see you in one of those suits, though. <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> So if you have enjoyed us, I'm not going to say wittering on because it's kind of, it's more than, it feels more than wittering, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, if you've enjoyed this podcast, then do uh, leave us. If you've enjoyed us witlessly wittering on. <laughs> then do leave us a review uh, and also rate uh, the podcast, especially if you listen to it on iTunes, because it just really helps other people find out about it. And uh, that would be great. Yeah. What she said, cool. but make sure you say nice things in the review. About me. <laughs> 